You're listening to audio from Risen Life Fellowship. If you'd like to learn more about our church or donate to this ministry, please visit risenlifefellowship.com. Something's wrong with our TV in the back, so I don't have a clock today. Um, not that that usually matters, right? <clears throat> anyway, good morning. How is everyone? Good to see you. Good to see this house full, except for this section. Nobody's here, right? So if anybody wants to come in, there's seats over here. And seats right on the front row, right? So we've got a few more seats here, but we are filling up, aren't we? Yes, we are. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, yeah, it's great to see, wonderful to see, and uh, wonderful to start another month together, February, can't believe it, and uh, more importantly, start another series this morning uh, through God's Word with you, and I hope you were as blessed as I was. Uh, to travel through the Sermon on the Mount the past few months, and uh, this morning we're going to start a new journey together through the letters of First and Second Peter, and we have our, our graphic good on the on the screen here behind me. Uh, so if you want to be turning to First Peter, uh, you can do that this morning. Uh, these are two fairly short letters uh, and, and categorized as general letters, meaning they aren't really written to uh, to a specific church, as, as are several of Paul's letters, but rather are written to a broad array of Christians in a, in a large geographical area, um, ultimately to every uh, church. Um, and, and of course, any, any Old Testament, or I'm sorry, New Testament letter, um, Old Testament book for that, for that matter as well, but all of these New Testament letters, they have a, an original audience. Um, but there's all, they've also been preserved for us today so that we can learn and, and grow from them and hear God's Word and, and obey God's Word. So this morning we're going to introduce 1 Peter and uh, just dive into the first couple of verses. Uh, 1 Peter is, um, is a very theologically rich letter and it, it's very pastoral as, as Peter is writing and he he says in chapter five that he's he's a fellow elder. So he's he's one of the elders of the church, the first one of the first elders of of a church, and and so this is a very pastoral letter, very encouraging letter uh, from Peter. Uh, this is one of my favorite books to read um, when I'm just struggling, and uh, and I hope that you'll find some encouragement as we go through. Uh, I would encourage you to read it every, every week as we're going through this series. It'll take you 15 minutes. It won't take you long at all. But just uh, read it and have these words in your mind as you come here. Um, and so we have titled our series through First and Second Peter as Not Home Yet. Not Home Yet. And that's going to become crystal clear, I think, by the end of our time together this morning. But the idea is that as believers, this world is, is not our home. Did you know that? Uh, this world, if you are a believer, is not your home. Of course, we have lots of things going on in this life, right? We have careers and, 
and, and school and relationships and hobbies and activities and all kinds of things that, that we do represented on our suitcase here but with all the stickers kind of re- relating to dis- different aspects of our lives. But as believers, we must remember that this world and the things in it are not ultimate. They are not eternal and they will never bring us ultimate hope. Much more on that as we continue on today. But as we open our series this morning, I've, I've titled our sermon today as a letter to God's elect aliens. So that doesn't pique your interest. I don't know what will. Right? We're going to talk about aliens today. And, and you are the alien, by the way. Um, so we'll get there. But stand with me and we're going to uh, read just the first couple of verses here in chapter one. And then we'll get started. So it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Let's pray. Father, I thank You so much for this church family. Um, Lord, I thank You that, uh, Lord, close to every seat in here is full. We are, uh, you are growing us, Lord, and we, we give You praise for that, Lord. And You get all honor and glory and praise for that, Lord, as You bring the people here that, that need to be here, Lord. And I believe every person here uh, today is here because they need to hear Your Word speak. And so, Father, I just ask that you would, uh, I just ask that I would allow that to happen this morning, um, Lord. That I would I'd not get in your way. That you would speak through me, um, Father. That you would use me as your vessel this morning, and that your word would be made great, not mine. Um, and, and Father, that this would be a time of of encouragement, of of conviction, of of salvation for some, perhaps. Um, Lord, whatever it is that, that, that You want to do this morning, would You do it, Father? And would You do even more than we are imagining or thinking, Father? Would You do even more? And Lord, we ask that You would get the glory out of our time together through First Peter, Lord, and, and through this morning. And we love You and we ask all these things in Your precious name. Amen. Alright, you can have a seat. Well, as we get started this morning uh, and get acquainted with this letter, I've got three points to get us introduced. The author of the level, the author of the letter, the audience of the letter, and then the anchor for the letter. So we'll see that as we go on uh, this morning. So let's start by getting introduced to the author of this letter. And of course, as with all scripture, First Peter is God-breathed. And its ultimate author is God Himself. But as, as the title of the letter uh, and the introduction makes clear, Peter is the one who wrote down these words that God has for us. And that's the miracle of Scripture, isn't it? It's that, that God speaks the very words that, that He wants to say, but within these letters, the personality and the style of the writer is still maintained. That's very clear. Peter's going to write differently than Paul writes. 
Yet they're both speaking the Word of God. And so we will see references in First and Second Peter to Peter's real experiences with Jesus and in his life as an apostle. Uh, he was an eyewitness to so many things. He walked with Jesus. Now, um, there are some who would dispute Peter's authorship of First Peter. Um, as with any book, the, the world is constantly trying to come against um, each and every book of, of our Bible, and, and they, they seem to really struggle in that endeavor, right? Because God has preserved these letters so well for us. Um, I will say that the church very early on affirmed, um, affirmed this as a genuine letter from the Apostle Peter and as God's Word, and, and the, the evidence for that is, is, is overwhelming. And I, and I will uh, leave that further study if you're interested uh, I will leave that to you. We won't get into all of that this morning. But we can be confident that this is God's Word uh, spoken through Peter. Now, Peter does mention Silas in his uh, letter. And he, he calls him Silvanus. Also called Silvanus in, in chapter 5, verse 12. Most of us, I don't know about you, but I think, I think of Silas and I think of Paul and Silas, right? So they were the ones like, in jail together. They went on this missionary journey together. I think of Paul and Silas in Acts, the book of Acts. Uh, but Peter evidently had a close relationship to Silas as well. And Silas may have actually written this letter down uh, for Peter, perhaps. Um, almost certainly, he was the one who delivered it to the churches. And he, he may have had a role um, in, in writing down the words with Peter. Uh, but Peter introduces himself as an apostle of Christ. Now, um, apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, we won't spend much time on this as, as we have on many other occasions, but the word apostle uh, means simply someone who is sent. Someone who is sent. But in this case, uh, as in the case of Paul when he uses the term for himself, uh, Peter is not only a sent one, uh, as in, we may send a person, right, as a missionary. He's not only a, a sent one, but he is sent from Jesus Christ himself. He's an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, these men, these, these 12 apostles, the 12 disciples, and Paul, um, they had unique authority. And they wrote the very words of God, just as the prophets in the Old Testament wrote the very words of God. So when we read 1 Peter, we read God's Word to us. These aren't suggestions. Um, they, they, aren't, uh, they aren't just suggestions for, for like living a better life or, or, or doing well in, in suffering or struggling. Um, but these are instructions and commands and, and plans from the very mind of God Himself. These are God's words. And Peter was uniquely sent by Christ and was a witness to Christ's resurrection. You had to be a witness to the resurrection to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. But he was a witness to the resurrection, to the ascension. He was there when Jesus ascended into heaven. He was there when, when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain. And in the Gospels we read about that. And he writes about it in Second Peter. He was an eyewitness to many, many other events with Jesus. And so he was uniquely sent. And he has unique authority um, in writing this. Now, when we think of uh, about the most influential men and, and apostles of the early church, 
It's probably Peter and Paul that come to your mind, if you're like me. Uh, of course, aside from Jesus Himself. Uh, I think of Peter and Paul. Those are kind of the next two I would think of in establishing the church. And of the two, um, both are incredible men of God who, who wrote God's Word. Now, both are apostles. Uh, but I don't know about you, but I can relate to Peter a whole lot easier than I can relate to Paul. Now, his words are still God's words to me, right? To be obeyed. And I love reading Paul, and he writes so eloquently. But I can relate to the Apostle Peter a lot better because Peter was much more of a screw-up. I mean, he just was. Paul, of course, we're told in Acts, he persecuted and he killed Christians, right? Uh, But then the Lord saved him. And so that's like a sentence. And then the Lord saves him and then it's just full steam ahead for Paul. And you read what he writes and it, yo, you're so challenged by it. It seems impossible to live up to who this man was. The Apostle Paul. It seems impossible to live up to the words he's saying. Of course, he was a sinner even after coming to Christ. But we just don't see that much of that side of Paul in the Bible, do we? Um, he was such an incredible example of what it means to live and to die for Christ. And then on the other hand, there's Peter. And uh, we get a much larger glimpse into Peter's struggles in the Bible, don't we? So we see him from the time that he meets Christ uh, during Jesus' ministry, before the cross, right? And, and we see him struggle a lot, actually. And we're really encouraged by that, Right? Oh, I can struggle too, right? Peter, Peter, see what Peter did? Look at that. We point the finger at Peter a lot. It takes some time for things to click with Peter. Though he loved Jesus and, and he followed Him with everything, it, it just wasn't such a dramatic, sudden change as it was with Paul. Peter is, is rather bullheaded. Right? He, he's kind of a uh, do-before-you-think kind of guy. He's passionate for sure, which is, which is great. But sometimes that passion was a little bit misplaced. Right? Remember Jesus meets Peter um, and John records it in chapter 1 of his Gospel and he says, you are Simon, son of Jonah, but from now on you'll be called Cephas, which is the Aramaic for Peter uh, and it means rock. Right? He was giving him a new name. What an introduction, right? Like, hello, I'm Jesus. From now on, I, you know what? You're just going to be Peter. You're not going to. You're not going to be. Uh, you're not going to be Simon anymore. Change your name right away. That's the first thing Jesus says to Peter, right? In, at least in the Gospel of John, um, and, and throughout the Gospels, we see these two names. We see Simon and Peter, uh, and, and they kind of represent these two sides of Peter: his his old fleshly nature, who he was, contrasted with his new nature, who he is in Christ. And you'll notice that most of the time when we see Jesus call him Simon, he's about to really screw up. That's when Simon is brought out. He's done something wrong and Jesus is correcting him. Uh, Peter, you know, at first was anything but the rock 
that, that his new name suggested and represented. And it really took him a while to get there. He struggled through his sanctification, through his growing closer to Christ. He denied Jesus, remember? He tried to stop the cross. Remember that? And Jesus had to call him not Simon, not Peter, but Satan in that case. He said, get thee behind me, Satan. Because Peter was trying to prevent the cross. And you can, of course, read all of these for yourselves. We're not, we're not going back and looking at these references this morning. Um, but he argued, Peter argued in pride with the other disciples. I'm the greatest disciple, right? He was, he was a prideful man. We also see him in the Garden of Gethsemane and, and he was supposed to be praying, but what was he doing? He was sleeping, right? Yes, he wasn't the only disciple sleeping, but he was asleep and, and, and Jesus has to come and say, Simon, could you not stay awake and pray for one hour? Please? I don't know if you can relate to that. I can certainly relate to that, right? Um, Peter's just very, very relatable. Each time that he... He screws it up. Jesus comes and He says, Simon, we've got another problem, don't we? Even after the resurrection, Peter tried to do things his own way. Jesus told him to go to Galilee and wait. Instead, he goes to Galilee and he says, let's go fishing, guys. Let's go fishing. You know, I'm tired of waiting on Jesus. Um, and Jesus pulls him aside and he actually, in that moment, restores him at breakfast. And he says, Simon, he says, Simon, right? He says, Simon, do you love me? And he says that three times. Simon, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep, right? And, um, and, and so Jesus restores him. He says it three times to restore those three denials that Jesus had made on the night of his arrest. You know, when Paul, t- or when, when Jesus. When God told Peter to go to the Gentiles, uh, Peter really struggled with that. And Peter really struggled even after he went to the Gentiles. And he led that first Gentile family to Christ. He really struggled to give the Gentiles full acceptance. And later, remember, Paul writes in Galatians that he had had to correct Peter on that. So even after the ascension, Peter was still uh, kind of struggling with certain things. Peter's struggles are evident throughout the New Testament. But God changed him. And we get to witness through the Scriptures that journey from from hot-headed Peter to this mature apostle and elder of the church. Encouraging the church to press on in Christ. Pursue holiness. We get to see him uh, go from the guy that's drowning in the sea because he, he took his eyes off of Christ to going to that man who, who, who kept his eyes so fixed on Christ, even to the point of being beaten and, and being imprisoned and eventually uh, being crucified for keeping his eyes so much on Christ. And we learn from Peter that you know what, if you are still breathing, uh, God's not done with you. God has purpose in your life, no matter how bad you think you've screwed it up. Now, Peter screwed it up several times, many times. And God at any point could have said, you know what, Peter, that's really, this is like the 20th time you're done. I'm taking somebody else. But he doesn't do that, does he? Instead, he bears with 
Peter and he makes him into the mature man that he does become. See, our Christian life is a journey, isn't it? It's a journey. It is a marathon. It's not just a moment in time. This is a marathon. And, and in that marathon, this is not our home. This is not our final resting spot. And in that journey, God is molding us. And He's maturing us through the things that we go through. And, and even through our own struggles and our own doubts and our own sin. And praise to God that He doesn't just leave us in our sin and our struggle, but He, he continues to grow us, doesn't He? He continues to grow us. God, God using us has nothing to do with our ability to be perfect. And with our ability to be sinless and, and to have perfect faith with no doubts. He doesn't expect that from you, Christian. Now, we do strive for holiness. We do study the Scriptures. We do study the evidence to confirm what we believe. I do the work, yes. But we will mess up. We will sin. We will uh, screw it up at times. But if we will humble ourselves before God, He will use us again. And He will use us in ways that we cannot imagine. I'm so thankful for Peter's example of that. And now he comes to write this letter as this apostle, this mature apostle writing the very words of God. And he has an audience in mind. And that's going to be our next point, the audience of the letter. And Peter addresses his letter in verse 1 to the pilgrims of the dispersion. And then he lists the specific areas where they reside. And right off the bat, with his address to them, we start to get the letter's purpose. He says they're pilgrims. He calls these believers pilgrims. Now yours might say sojourners, it might say exiles, it might say uh, strangers, it might say aliens, and as our title alludes to this morning, aliens. Um, the idea here is, is a people who are traveling to a place to permanently settle. They're not home yet, but on their way home, passing through this foreign land. And this foreign land is earth, by the way. This is the foreign land of the Christian. And he says they're of the dispersion. Now that word is a word that means scattered in the Greek. The word means scattered, but it's often used in the Bible to speak specifically of the Jews when they were exiled from in Babylon in the Old Testament. So about 586 B.C., uh, the dispersion happened. They were carried off to foreign lands. Many were carried off to Babylon. That event is called the dispersion, and it's referred to a lot in Scripture. Um, they were taken from Israel and scattered. It's used twice, that word dispersion, in the New Testament, other than here. Um, and it's used in those two places with a definite article. The dispersion. And so it's probably there referring to that event. The Jewish people being scattered. But here, there is no definite article. So it could be translated simply scattered. And to the pilgrims who are scattered throughout these lands. And what Peter is doing is he's comparing these churches, these believers who live in these regions. He's comparing them to the Jews who were displaced from their homeland 
uh, in the dispersion. These churches he addresses, he addresses would be made up of, of many Jewish believers. There would have been a lot of Jewish believers, but also many Jew, Gentile believers as well. And he's saying that just as the Jews in the dispersion were displaced from their home in Israel, in the same way Christians, believers, are displaced from our home in heaven. We're not home yet. The world is not our home. Now, he goes on and he lists specific areas. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, uh, Asia, Bithynia. And each one had their own story of how, how their churches were founded there. Paul traveled in some of these areas. Uh, Paul was actually forbidden to travel in other of these areas. Uh, Peter, perhaps, traveled in some of these areas. Though we don't really know Peter's travels. Uh, but he appears to have a connection here. Some of these churches were probably founded by Jewish believers who came to Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and then they went home, and they came to Jerusalem for Pentecost, and they went home with the Gospel, and they shared it in their homelands, and they planted churches there. But these areas make up a, a very large region in the first century known as Asia Minor. And you may have heard that term, Asia Minor. Um, it's also modern-day Turkey, and it includes pretty much all of, of modern-day Turkey. Uh, this is a very wide geographical area that he's writing to and some have suggested that these cities are are named in the order in which the area in, in which the letter would have been carried to those churches so if you look on a map these these are kind of in a circle these geographical areas um, so they may be listed in that um, in, in that for that reason um, and one of the main themes in this letter is this theme of persecution Peter speaks of persecution at least 15 times in 1 Peter. And most scholars uh, believe that this was written around 63 A.D. by Peter, and he's writing from Rome. Now, he actually calls it Babylon in chapter 5. He says, Babylon uh, greets you. But, but most agree that he's trying to make that connection to the dispersion that we talked about earlier, that connection to, to uh, Babylon and Rome was often called Babylon in the first century by the early church. And so he's probably writing just before the persecution became very, very violent and widespread under Emperor Nero. And maybe you've heard of, of Emperor Nero. Uh, these believers are obviously, if you read this letter, they're obviously dealing with being alienated from their cultures. Uh, they are being mocked, and, and some are physically being persecuted. I think that's clear. And Peter is preparing them for it to get much, much worse. In fact, it would get so bad that both Peter and Paul would be martyred under Emperor Nero in just a couple of years from this point. And Nero would do unspeakable things uh, to the Christians. He would, he, would, he would cover them in tar and light them on fire to light his parties. I mean, he was a wicked, wicked emperor and, and really took a lot of hatred out on uh, the Christians and, and blamed the Christians for the fire uh, that Rome experienced, that, that destroyed Rome, which, which most people think he actually um, started. And so uh, the persecution was about to get much, much worse. But already it was picking up in these areas and they were experiencing some of this. Now remember that Jesus said in John chapter 15, if the world hates you, 
Well, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That is the consistent calling of the Christian. We are aliens in this world. As if we were from another planet. We are strangers. And the world hates us. Our message is foolishness to the world. That's what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, right? Our practices are weird to the world. We're about to take communion in just a few moments. That is really weird to the world. Our morals are stupid to the world. Why? Just do what you want. Our Lord is irrelevant to the world. Who cares? I am God. And our gathering is is pointless to the world. I'm so glad you are here this morning. You don't find this pointless this morning, but you know what the world does? Why do Christians get up early and meet on a Sunday? Why do they do that? Why do they find a way to be in each other's lives all the time? That is strange to the world. And we will be mocked. And and there may come a day, I believe there will come a day once again, as these believers eventually found out that we may be killed for our faith in this country. You can see our society inching closer day after day. And it's already, of course, a reality across the world as more Christians are killed and persecuted today than ever before. This world is not our home. I'm going to be saying that a lot. And you're going to struggle to grasp it a lot. So am I. Because that's what we do. We get so tied to this world and the things in it and we need a constant reminder that we are not home yet. We are pilgrims passing through and our citizenship is in heaven. That's what Philippians 3.20 says. He says, our citizenship is in heaven and from there we await the Savior. So There's a sense in which as Christians, we're already there. We're already in heaven, yet here we are in our bodies here on earth. We're not home yet. And the more we refuse to embrace that truth, And the more we hold so tightly to this world and to our felt needs, the more we are going to struggle in our Christian lives. Because we're not home yet. We should look different than the world. You should look different than your coworkers as a Christian. We have different values. And we have a different Lord. Our allegiance is to something beyond this world. If we understand this truth that we are aliens, it changes the way that we live. It changes our expectations and our ability to respond to others and to be patient with others. Because you know what? We're not, we're not home yet. And they don't maybe have the same home that I have. I can be much more patient with others, it changes our goals and our purposes. Because my goals are primarily heaven's goals and not earthly goals. This truth 
changes our relationships. And we're going to see that in this book. It changes the way that we deal with inconveniences. This isn't our home. It changes the way we view suffering and trials and keep our eyes focused on Christ. And it changes even the way we view those who put us through suffering. Because we know that this isn't the end. And this isn't ultimate. It changes our pursuit of holiness. As Peter is going to call us to be holy as our Father is holy. And it changes the way we view this lost world. It should make us more desperate to witness to others. Because we want others to go with us to this eternal heavenly place that is our home. So it changes everything. Grasping this truth that we are not home yet. Peter writes to these exiles and to us, also pilgrims passing through this world. And he calls us to embrace our weirdness. You need to embrace that you're an alien to this world. Just deal with it. Get over it. Don't be surprised by it. Stop being so surprised when you get persecuted for what you believe. Stop being so surprised when you get called a bigot. And you're simply standing on the truth of the Word of God. And stop getting so comfortable here. So that we can stand firm on the truth. No matter what trials might come to us. And as it begins to to explain these things in these opening verses, he, he wants to start by first giving us an anchor for our journey through this foreign land. So it's an anchor for this letter. It's also an anchor uh, for our souls. And that's going to be our final point this morning. The anchor for the letter. And that anchor is found for believers in our identity in Christ. That's got to be your anchor this morning. That's got to be your identity this morning. It's who Christ says that you are. It can't be anything else. It will not do to be anything else. It must be who Christ says that you are. He calls us strangers, aliens, pilgrims in verse 1. But we're not just aliens. He goes on with that. He says we're elect aliens. As he says in verse 2. It could be in verse 1 in your version. He calls them and us elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And right off the bat, Peter dives into this doctrine that the church has both found security in and wrestled with over the centuries. And that's the doctrine of election. And that word elect means choice. We are chosen Exiles. We are rejected by the world, but we are chosen by God. And the controversy in the church, what we have fought about for centuries, is not really that election is a doctrine taught in the Bible. It clearly is. You cannot deny the doctrine, the doctrine of election. But rather, how exactly does this election happen? That's really the controversy. Is it conditional or or is it unconditional? Is it corporate? Or is it individual? And, and we are not going to answer every question this morning. And, and I think it's okay 
to say that there is some mystery there between God's choosing us and our free will that we're never going to fully understand until we get to heaven. And I don't think we need to pretend like we have it all figured out. But this is not a doctrine that should scare us away from passages that use this word. Also, not a doctrine that we need to divide over. It grieves my heart when we divide into camps over this doctrine. Why would we do that? We are all together pilgrims passing through. We need one another. Why then would we say to true believers, you know what, let's divide on this secondary issue. We so often make this issue a primary one, and it just is not. It simply is not. This should be a comforting doctrine to us, though. And a unifying doctrine to us, even if we can't fully wrap our hands around all of the details. Uh, Peter, in the next chapter, verse uh, chapter 2, verse 9, he calls these believers a chosen people. He says you are a chosen race or a chosen people. And that is the anchor that they need in the midst of neighbors who hate them and a world who persecutes them. They need to know that they, they are no accident. And that God has purpose in them. And that He has had purpose in them from the beginning. God chose the church. Just as He chose Israel to be His people. Who I believe He's still not done with, by the way. He still has a purpose for the nation of Israel. But before the world was created, God chose that He would bring the Gospel and He would bring the Savior, Jesus Christ, to the world through one nation, and that nation was Israel, right? He chose Israel, His chosen people. And, and through Israel, He says, I'm going to bless all other nations. And He does that through the Savior, of course. And He also chose, before the foundation of the world, that He would pour out His love through salvation on all who would come in faith through Christ. This is what defines the church. Those who are saved through faith in Jesus Christ. These are the elect exiles. And what's crystal clear in Scripture is that God has chosen to save those who believe not based on anything good in us. We've got to get that clear this morning. Your salvation has nothing to do with your goodness or you earning it. And you cannot just buck up and do better and think that you're going to land in heaven. That is not how salvation works. There's nothing good in you or in me. It's based solely on His love and desire for all to be saved. There's nothing we do to contribute to our salvation. And we could never earn it. He freely gives it in His Son. And it was earned at the cross with the shed blood of Christ which covers our sin. Salvation is 100% a gift from God. So that no one can boast. Remember Paul says that in Ephesians 2. So that nobody can boast. Let's get this clear. Your salvation is a gift from God. And Peter says here that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, God is totally sovereign. And He can choose to save whoever He wants, 
for any reason or for no apparent reason at all because He is God. Amen? Can you say amen to that? If God wants to send all of us to hell, He can do that. And He should still be worshipped because He is God. He is the Creator. He can, he can choose to save for whatever reason He wants or for no reason at all. But the question is, is that how He chooses? Is that how God chooses us? And certainly, the Bible um, clearly teaches that His election has nothing to do with our earning. It's not that God saw that you would be good and He, he, he selects you to be saved. But the Bible does teach, I believe, that His election is tied to at least a couple of things. First of all, we must be in Christ. His election is related to us being in Christ. Isaiah 42, verse 1, says that Christ, His servant, is His chosen one. Christ is the chosen one through whom He would save the world. He chose Christ to bring salvation. And Ephesians 1 says that we are elect in Him. That goes together. We are elect in Him. We are elect in Christ. So our election is based upon our being in Christ. Our humbling ourselves before Christ in repentance and faith. That is a condition. God elected Christ and we must be found in His elected One in order to be saved. And we do that through faith. And those who are in Christ, He has predestined to be with Him forever. He has predestined many, many things which we will list a little bit later, but He has predestined things for those who are in Christ. The elect in Christ. Here, Peter says that election is also according to His foreknowledge. Now, this does not just mean that God looked through the corridors of time as it's so often caricatured. He looks through the corridors of time and He, he saw those who would believe in Him and He chose them. Okay, they chose me, so I chose them. That's not, it's not exactly that simple. right? <clears throat> That's not exactly what foreknowledge means. For one thing, God is totally outside of time. And He has all knowledge at all times. So there is no looking through the corridors of time for God. He is in all places at all times with all knowledge of you. And He had intimate knowledge of you before He created you. This word foreknowledge, it actually has this idea of, of God's plan. God's planning. The word is prognosis. In the Greek, and of course that's an English word as well, right? Uh, we steal that from the Greeks and we use it to mean the expected outcome of something based on the usual course. Based on the usual plan. Um, it was His plan from the beginning. His foreknowledge to set His love on the church and to make provision for all through Christ. And He chose to save all who are in Christ. And that same word translated foreknowledge here is translated foreordained in verse 20 in, in, in the same chapter, chapter 1. And it's speaking about Christ. God did more than just predict that Christ would die on the cross or just observe it. He didn't just look through the corridors of time and say, okay, yep, Christ died. 
No, He planned it, didn't He? He planned it in His love for the world. There are many other verses that we could point to, but the point is that the cross and the church were God's plan from the beginning. He chose to display His perfect love by creating us and redeeming us through His own Son's blood. We are no mistake. And you are no mistake. And this is what defines us as believers. God choosing to pour out His love on us who are in Christ and to save us. This is the church. And we are not home yet. And to the world, we are rejected. But to God, we are chosen. And He chose us long ago. And we find our home in Him. And our election, our choosing, is based on His foreknowledge and plan. And it's based on our faith in Christ. It cannot be separated from those. Somehow God works all of that out and I don't have to fully understand it. We are told in Scripture we must be found in Him by humbling ourselves in repentance and faith. That's a genuine call. You must humble yourself in repentance and faith. Now there's certainly some mystery between God's sovereignty and our free will, but we can rest in the fact that the church, the chosen people, was God's plan from the beginning. He has loved us before He created us and planned the way to save us through the cross of Christ. Now Peter next says that we are elect in sanctification of the Spirit. When the Gospel is proclaimed to us, when we hear the Gospel, the Spirit convicts us of sin. And it is the Spirit who opens our eyes. And it is the Spirit who transforms us who believe through repentance and faith. He changes our desires and our thoughts and He cleanses us from sin. Salvation is planned by the Father and it's worked out and applied to us by the Spirit of God. Then Peter says that we are elected for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So he gives two results of our salvations, two our salvation, two reasons that he saves us. First, for obedience. The first act of obedience is obedience to the gospel. The gospel is a command to be followed. We must obey the gospel, surrender to Christ as the only hope for our salvation. But that continues in living a life where Jesus is not only my Savior, but he is the Lord of my life. He saved you this morning, Christian, for obedience. Not because of your obedience, but for your obedience. We should want what He wants. We should walk in His ways and not just our own feelings if we are truly saved. The church was chosen for obedience to Christ. And if there's no obedience to Christ, we have to really ask ourselves if we are really part of the church. If we are really part of these elect exiles. If we have truly surrendered to Him. James says that faith without works is dead. Your works do not save you, but faith without works is dead. There is no faith. 
You show me your faith by your works, by your obedience. We will never be perfect on this earth, but we should long to follow Christ in obedience. And if that's not there, you've got some questions to ask yourself this morning. Do I really know Him if I have no desire to follow Him? I don't think so. It doesn't work like that. You were saved for obedience if you were saved. And then Peter says something kind of strange to us. We are elect for sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And this is really amazing actually when we get to the bottom of what he's talking about here. And he's referring again to a specific event here in the Old Testament. He's referring to an event recorded for us in Exodus 24. And you're welcome to turn over there if you'd like. Um, verses 3 through 8. We're going to have the verses on the screen, but I'm not going to fall. I'm not just going to read them word for word. In Exodus 24, Moses stands before the people of Israel and he tells them everything that God had shared with him on Mount Sinai. Remember, Moses goes up, he meets with God on the mountain, and he comes back down and he speaks to the people. And he tells them the law of God, he tells them the things that God shared with him. And so he gives them the law and the people all gathered together and they say all the words which the Lord has said we will do. They commit to obeying the Lord. Then Moses spends the night writing God's words down. He writes down this law and he wakes up early in the morning and he builds an altar. And they do burnt offerings of oxen on that altar to the Lord. And Moses takes half the blood of the oxen and he sprinkles it all over the altar, representing God's part in this covenant. And then he reads the law again in front of the people. This is what God is promising to do, and this is God's law. And they agree again that they will be obedient. And so Moses takes the other half of the blood and he sprinkles it on the people. Well, I'm glad we don't do that today, right? Thank God for the new covenant. Right, Because I'm not up here sprinkling blood on you this morning. But that's how, that's how they did it in this case. And that's how God decreed for it to be done. And He says to the people, this is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. See, that's how covenants were made. Through blood. And this was the sealing of that Mosaic covenant. The author of Hebrews brings this incident up again in Hebrews chapter 9. You can read that for yourself sometime. But Hebrews chapter 9, he relates it to Christ sprinkling His blood upon us now to seal this new covenant that He ushers in. And so Peter is recounting this. And he's saying that, that when we come to Christ through repentance and faith, we are coming now into a covenant with God. Christ has covered us with His blood and we are saying that we are coming to Him as Lord. We will obey what He says. Again, that's not what saves us, but we are coming in this covenant saying that we will obey. We are saved for obedience. Again, not because of obedience, but for it. Meanwhile, Christ has entered into the throne of God in heaven. That's the real altar. Every altar represents the throne of God. Christ has entered with His own blood into the throne of God in heaven. And He has atoned for our sins. That's His part of 
the covenant. And this new covenant is a promise from God to forgive now forever. We don't have to do the whole sprinkling thing over and over again. Christ's blood was given once for all. And through the sprinkling of His more perfect blood, His perfect blood, Christ's blood, He forgives us and cleanses us of our sin. See, that blood of the oxen in Exodus was looking forward to this more perfect blood of Christ and this more perfect covenant. And now God, by the blood of Christ, is sealing our salvation. And when Jesus said this is the blood of the new covenant, we're going to read that in just a moment, with communion, He's sealing our salvation. And you know what He's doing? He's saying, your sins are forgiven even when you fail to obey Me perfectly. Even when you fail to live up to your end of the covenant, I will fulfill My end of the covenant. We may break our promises, but He will not. He's saying that we are secure in God. That's what Peter's saying here. You are secure in the sprinkling of blood. Secure in your future because of this sprinkling of blood. God has entered into this new covenant promising that He will do for us what He says He will do for us. He has planned this from the foundation of the world. He has set His love on the church. He has called us by the Gospel. Transformed us by His Spirit. Sprinkled us with the perfect blood of His Son. And through that promises that we have complete forgiveness of sins. Past, present, and future in Christ. And we have an eternal future with Him in heaven. Even despite our failures. He will never leave us nor forsake us. He will be faithful to His covenant. You see, salvation is a covenant with God. And He will be faithful to His covenant. And notice the Trinity, by the way, in these first verses to give you more security. How all three persons of the Godhead are involved in our salvation. The Father foreknows and plans. The Spirit sanctifies and cleanses. And the Son sheds His blood so that we can be saved. So that our sins can be covered. And because of this salvation, Peter can say then, grace and peace be multiplied to you. That's a common greeting in these letters, but man, it's a nice following to what he just said. Grace and peace be multiplied to you. We have been given tremendous grace through this salvation. We have been forgiven, made perfect by the blood of Christ. We have been redeemed. We have been adopted as His sons and His daughters. We have been given an inheritance that is sure. We have been given the Holy Spirit inside of us. We have been given purpose in this life and in the next life. We have been given gifts to use for His glory. And because of this marvelous grace, we can have such peace in suffering too. And that's what he's getting at here. Even in trial, you can have peace because your future is so secure. Your present is so secure. This world cannot touch you. What, what are they going to take from you exactly? So why are we so scared? 
What is this world going to take from you? God has promised what He has promised. And He will complete it. And we can have a true anchor for our souls knowing that we are accepted by God in Christ. Even when we fail, even when we doubt, even in our struggle. He looks at us as sons and daughters. And if you will grasp that, it will change your life. But we know that we are not home yet, right? We're not home yet. My prayer is that through this study, we will begin to really grasp what it means that this world is not our home. Because I don't know about you, but I really struggle. I struggle to just hold on to that truth and to live and walk in that truth. That this world is not my home. And that that we truly are citizens of heaven and not earth so much. And that truth will bring us peace and perseverance and joy so that we will stand firm in the truth and proclaim this Gospel wherever we go. We're going to move now to a time of invitation and and then communion in just a few moments. I'm going to ask the band to come on back up. And we're going to celebrate this new covenant in Christ's blood. This covenant where God promises to keep us in His grace as believers. God has planned the salvation of the church from the beginning. But you know, nothing said here today or in Scripture should be used as an excuse to reject Christ. And to say, well, you know what, maybe I'm just not supposed to be part of this chosen people. Maybe I'm not part of the chosen. No, 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 no. The Bible is clear that Jesus' blood has made provision for all. And that it is God's desire for all to be saved. You become chosen. You become part of the church which God has set apart. You become an elect alien through humbling yourself this morning. Through repenting of sin and through turning to Christ alone in faith. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes if you will. And nothing is keeping any and all people from coming today to Christ for salvation. Nothing is keeping you. You have no excuse before God. God has loved you enough to send His Son to die for you. And boy, Peter is a testament himself, isn't he? Of the patience of God and the fact that He can save anyone who will come to Him in repentance and faith. And not just save you, but use you in ways that that you cannot imagine. So come this morning. Lay yourself down. And come to Him in humility. That's it though, isn't it? That's, That's the condition. Humility. You cannot stand before God in your pride. You must come empty. You must come submitting to God that you don't have the answers. And that you're actually not that great. In fact, you're filthy. 
and you're standing in light of His holiness. His perfect holiness. People see the holiness of God in Scripture and they fall on their face. That is the picture of the Christian coming to faith in Christ. It's humble. It is humility. Lowering myself. So when you do that this morning, you, you do that by repenting of your sin. Not just saying I'm sorry. But recanting of that sin. Forsaking all sin in my life. And turning around. And walking towards the Savior. In faith. In faith that He will help you. That He will help you by His Spirit. So we come this morning. I'd be glad to talk to you about that. Come and get me during prayer in just a moment. This altar is going to be open if you want to come. As believers, we need to understand that in this world, there will be trials. There will be brokenness. There will be loss. And that is precisely because this place is not our home. Our home will be perfect. Don't worry. Our home will have no sin. Our home will have just beauty. Our home will have Jesus Himself. But we're not home yet. And we will be hated in this world if we're going to be true witnesses for Christ. Because we don't belong here. My prayer is that we'd become comfortable with that. And that it would make us bold. And that it would make us stand firmer in the truth. And it would make us stand firmer in our holiness. It would make us stand firm when we go to work. And that we would just speak the truth that we know. What do we have to lose? This isn't our home. There's nothing they can take from us. But the truth is that we so often hold too tightly to this world. So just as we get into the study, just scratching the surface here, and I know it was theologically deep today, but we're just scratching the surface of this book, and let's lay that down this morning. Let's ask Him, Lord, make me comfortable with the fact that this world is not where I should find comfort. This world is not my home. Lord, help me to grasp it. Help me to live in it and walk in it. My prayer is that you define yourself this morning by who you are in Christ. Ultimately, that is the only way you will be defined in eternity. Are you in Christ or are you not? So why don't we practice that now? I am in Christ and I am who Christ says I am. And it doesn't matter what the world thinks. It doesn't matter what I think. It doesn't matter what anyone says. I am defined by who Jesus Christ is and who He says I am in Him. I want you to rest in that truth this morning in the midst of all kinds of labels that the world would put on you. We are first of all His forever for those of us that believe. And that is your anchor.
And that is my anchor this morning. Let's praise Him for that as we close. Um, we're going to move into a time of, of communion and uh, we're going to play through this song. And You spend some time with the Lord uh, thinking about this new covenant in Christ's blood. Thinking about who you are in Christ. Repenting of sin, even as believers repenting of sin that you might be holding in your heart. And then when you're ready, if you want to approach the table and grab uh, those elements in the back and we will come back together in just a moment and we will uh, take it together. Um, but let's truly embrace our identity as elect aliens. Yes, you are a weirdo, but you are a chosen weirdo. Chosen by God. And we're living for the next life. I'm going to give you time to do what you need to do with the Lord.